Greetings, USC, and welcome to Spark XM. Today, we're joined by the one and only Wise Rahim. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Great to have you, too. We're going to quickly get to Wise, but before we get started, just wanted to introduce my co hosts, my right hand man, associate. Grant Glinner. Hey, Mark. What's going on, man? Not much. How are you? Uh, doing pretty well. Good to know you're doing pretty well. Anyways, uh, and before we get into uh, all of Wise's experiences, his thoughts, get to know him a little bit, just want to give our listeners a quick background of Spark XM and our mission behind this podcast. So, Spark XM is USC's very own podcast where we interview student and alumni entrepreneurs every week. The goal is to get to know their thoughts, experiences, and generally what they're doing. And there's yet to be a platform at USC specifically to learn about what's going on in the entrepreneurial community here. So we hope to inspire inspires our, our listeners uh, by uncovering the stories of our guests. Anyways, uh, enough about Spark XM, and now to Wise. He is a senior studying industrial systems engineering who hails all the way from Bangladesh. And in the time I've gotten to know Wise, he is an extremely energetic person, and I hope that through the audio of this podcast, you could hear his thirst for life. So uh, looking forward to that happening. And just a quick background, we're going to let Wise uh, delve into this himself more, but... Uh, what Wise is most known for is his work with Y Athletics, which is a new innovative activewear company, and he'll talk more about what that means. And he's also been involved with ProjectC.co, which is a crowdfunding platform for Bangladesh entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So to get things started, let's turn to our subject, Wise. Can you tell us a little bit more about Y Athletics mm -hmm. and the whole experience with that, how it started? Yeah. where that's going right now. Mm -hmm. So um, when I came to USC, um, I didn't know one person in Los Angeles, and he happened to be uh, my sister's best friend's brother. And mm -hmm. I, in fact, he's the person who had convinced me to come to USC. So when I got USC's acceptance letter, he's the first person I sort of called and said, hey, you know, what, what should I do? And he's the one who had convinced me to come out to USC. So once I got to LA, he, I met up with him once or twice, uh, had dinner, and he was working in Los Angeles. He just graduated from Marshall School of Business about a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, my sophomore year, uh, he called me and he's like, hey, I want you to help me uh, market these products that I'm working on. So initially he told me he's making these odorless antibacterial T-shirts. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, what do you mean odorless T-shirts, this and that? But when I met, met up with him and I saw what he was doing, he had... Um, Basically, he worked on these uh, fabrics that had silver yarns infused into them. And silver is naturally antibacterial. So when you sweat, it neutralizes the odor-causing bacteria. And so, but the factory he was working with had a minim minimum of $100,000 for the minimum order size. Uh, so that's when we sort of started working together, and I got really into it. Uh, and the goal was to set up a Kickstarter, and we had 30 days to put together a video with some friends because uh, that's how long the free trial for Final Cut Pro was, and we didn't want to pay the full version. So we're like, all right, that's a good deadline, 30 days. <laughs> we got together some friends from USC, uh, and we put together a short two-minute video describing the benefits of the product. Uh, it's really hard to sell physical goods online, 
yeah. especially T-shirts, because so much of the value is in how soft the fabric is mm -hmm. and, you know, what the feel of the T-shirt is. So that was that was challenging. We spent we spent weeks and uh, a lot of time on our script and a lot of different takes on the video. And we finally had like a two minute, 10 second video that we put up on Kickstarter, hoping to raise at least $30,000. Uh, but we actually needed to raise like $100,000 to go forward. So we took a bet on that. And in you took a bet. Yeah, oh, we took no, a you bet. didn't take it like a bet between yourself. You just took a chance. Yeah, yeah, took yeah. a chance, took a chance. We uh, took a chance because uh, we wanted to be low enough that it was sort of realistic that yeah. you know we would be able to get there. Um, so like backers would feel comfortable putting in the first fifty dollars, seventy dollars. Because when you have a goal of a hundred thousand dollars, or you know when you see a Kickstarter that wants to raise like half a million dollars, uh, you know you feel like putting in fifty bucks, but you feel like is this really going to reach half a million? And you don't want to do it. You want to come back later. So when everyone does that, you know, it's the, it's hard to gain traction on the campaign. So we started to set a low target of thirty thousand, mm -hmm. but we were, we were fairly certain that we'd be able to raise a hundred thousand based on all the other activewear or apparel startups that we had seen on Kickstarter. And so we did that, and uh, you know, and we were fairly sure about raising a hundred thousand, but over the next thirty-five days, we ended up raising like two hundred fifty thousand dollars in pre-orders. And so this was what year was this? So it was 2013 or 2014. Mm -hmm. So Kickstarter was super early on. If I brought up Kickstarter in my classes, you know, like maybe one or two people out of 20 people knew about Kickstarter. Um, you know, since 2014, 15, it's gotten much more mainstream. So that was the initial, that's how we, we essentially got started. Uh, we got a lot of pre-orders. Uh, to our surprise, we got 3,700 people who wanted to back us. So and how did you deal with all those pre-orders? Was it just... You said you weren't. You were trying trying to set a low target, but then once it went, yeah, skyrocketing, the I guess presence of mind to kind of fulfill those orders. What, mm -hmm. what was the experience like? Uh, yeah. So um, in a lot of campaigns, there's usually like a supply chain. Like for example, with 3D printers. Like if you're expecting to make like 500 printers, but you get orders for 5,000 printers, like it's 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 very difficult to get all the parts and stuff yeah. uh, together. But in our case. Uh, we were working with pretty large factories, so for them, scaling up wasn't the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. So for us, scaling up wasn't that big of an issue. But for a lot of these campaigns on Kickstarter, it is. Uh, our only concern was we need to get at least $100,000 a minimum. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we were pretty overwhelmed, but it was exciting. And so after you'd gotten started, you got the funding and you had your manufacturing partners, you still ran into some hurdles. I remember yeah. we were talking earlier. Yeah. Uh -huh. You told me about um, a time when you got some help from Ariana Huffington. Yeah. Do you yeah, want to tell that story? Yeah, that's bit? an interesting story because so there's a certain activewear apparel company that we were on their radar and we knew they weren't big fans of our product. Um, it was because uh, they also had a similar product which had silver infused into it and they're a $10 billion public company. Um, and from the early days when we were just talking to our manufacturers, uh, our manufacturers had told us, hey, you know, there's certain companies also inquiring about you guys and what you guys are doing, so just stay careful. So we would always joke around that, you know, this, this company's gonna come after us at some point. So three weeks before, so at this point, our manufacturing was done. We were manufacturing out of a factory in Jordan and uh, Tel Aviv. So uh, my partner, Sam, had even, uh, been to Tel Aviv, visited the factory, saw all the products to ensure the quality and everything, and flown back. But three weeks before they were supposed to ship it out to us, we get an email saying that, hey, sorry, we can't fulfill this order because a certain company uh, is sort of side-arming us into canceling this order. 
uh, and they even refused to pay back our initial deposit that we had given them. Wow. So this was clearly uh, a breach of our contract that we had with our manufacturer, especially because we had developed this fabric along with them. Um, and in nowhere had they mentioned that, you know, there would be a possibility of this type of a, of a problem. Um, and so it was, it was almost like a running joke, like, you know, someday this was going to happen. So when my partner uh, told me about this, I initially thought he was joking, like, huh, right, good one. <laughs> then I realized that, no, this is, this is real. And so at that point, there were very few options. Uh, we're a small company, Amsterdam College. My co-founder has just graduated out of college, like, two, three years before that. And so and in the apparel business, we're basically nobody. We're just trying to put in an order for, you know, uh, $250,000. So at that point, um, it just happened to be that um, I was on Twitter and I saw Ariana Huffington retweet an article criticizing the company that had come after us. So mm -hmm. they had uh, there was they were going through some uh, marketing disaster where the founder of the company had basically said that they only want a certain type of women to be representing representing their products, and a lot of controversial things. Uh, and so Ariana Huffington retweeted it. So, you know, I clearly knew that she wasn't a big fan of this guy, right? right. And coincidentally, I also got an email that there was an event happening with, where Ariana Huffington was doing a book signing um, thing after she spoke. So I'm like, that's a pretty odd coincident. You know, let me see if I can go <laughs> have a word with her and see if she can help through the Huffington Post or you know, any sort of publicity that can sort of help us stand out against this larger company. Right. Um, so I bought a ticket to the book signing event. And I waited outside a church in Beverly Hills where the event was, waiting for her to come by. And she sort of drove in with the CEO of Sony in a black Rolls Royce. And as she was walking up, I you know, walked up to her and said, hey, I'm a student at USC. Thank you so much for coming here and speaking to us. I wanted to ask you a quick uh, question. She's like, oh, you know, what is it? Um, so I told her that, you know, when you were starting the Huffington Post, how'd you make your space for yourself amongst giants like LA Times and uh, New York Times? And she said something, but I was just like thinking, like, okay, how do I, how do I divert transition this to transition into, yeah. this into what I'm trying to get to? Uh, and then, and then I quickly jumped and said that, um, oh, you know, because me and my friend uh, we're starting an active wear apparel company, and larger companies like, and I said the name of the company are trying to shut us down by unethically cutting off our supply chain. And so immediately she was like, wait, what? They did what? <laughs> and so she asked me about what happened in more mm -hmm. details. And then she called the senior editor of the Huffington Post and said, hey, you guys need to do a feature story on this, uh, you know, help support these guys. Um, and so that was sort of like something completely out of the ordinary that, you know, happened. And there was so many coincidences, but it's also just like, you got to believe that there's a way out. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's the most bizarre thing. Uh, but so that sort of helped us at least feel more confident that we weren't just two kids without a voice, who are being sidearmed by this large company. Uh, if we wanted, we could write an op-ed on, uh, on the Huffington Post. Right. So. Yeah, and that's, I'm sure that was a huge help. Uh, yeah, uh, we didn't actually end up go for, going forward with writing it. Uh, okay. But at the same time, it was, um, it was sort of, we felt much more confident when we were talking to our lawyers, when we were talking to the factory that we were dealing with in Tel Aviv. Um, so things worked out for us. We got our money back from the factory. We found a much better factory here in the U.S., so all our products, all our shirts now are made in locally in the U.S. And so things worked out for the better for us. That's great. And so I know some might attribute that situation to luck. Mm -hmm. And would you agree with them on that? Or do you think that there was something more that kind of led you to uh, working with them and sort of 
taking these opportunities that came to you? Yeah, no, I, I think I think a majority of it was luck, uh, and I think that I keep seeing that happen all the time. Um, just the other day, I think uh, so. I, I think I'm a pretty lucky person, uh, but I also think like it depends on a person's ability to recognize patterns. Like for example, if you didn't know something, um, or if if you had no clue what Teslas were, right? And then suddenly you're into Teslas, and then you, every time you're out in LA, you're gonna start seeing, oh wow, like there are actually so many Teslas. You know, I, I never noticed this before. Um, so it's sort of like a our brains are certainly naturally wired to recognize patterns. Um, so I think luck. A lot of luck is out of your control, but recognizing these patterns and sort of putting them together, uh, I think, is up to us as individuals to do. Yeah, it's it's about uh, showing up. Yeah, like yeah. The... So w- one thing that I really believe in is that a lot of like all all the coolest things that ha- that have happened in my life so far have happened purely out of serendipity. Uh, but the, then again, it's also because I've exposed myself to that level of serendipity. You know. Um, and I feel like how I've exposed myself is, you know, whenever I meet people, whenever all my friends know all the things that I'm interested in. So, um, you know, if, we've, if we have a chat for 20, 30 minutes, you're going to be able to tell, all right, this guy is really into, say, crowdfunding or, um, you know, really into technology and business. And so whenever there's like an event or something happening, you're going to let me know, like on Facebook, like, hey, Wise, thought you might find this interesting. Or like most of my friends know that I'm really into cars. So whenever there's like a Cars or Coffee event uh, or any Cars-related event, they're always like, hey, Wise, you know, did you know this was happening? Do you want to go? So I feel like if people know what you're interested in and they, I guess, sort of like you, they're going to try and help you or show you things that might you might find interesting. So... It's like it's almost like the entire world is sort of working to help you reach your goal in many ways. Beyond the Ariana Huffington story, is there anything else maybe related to why athletics or just mm-hmm. your life in general? Something else, how serendipity has played into your life? Yeah, um, serendipity. So I think this last week I was hanging out with some friends. Um, and so uh, I'll get to this later. But uh, so after graduation, I'll be heading back to Bangladesh by the yeah. end of the year. And back home, I'm very interested in working in the mobile payment space. So some mobile payments um, and credit lending to people who don't have traditional bank accounts. And so I've been doing a lot of research in companies like InVenture, Branch. Yep. They're sort of based out of Silicon Valley, but doing pilot projects in Africa and Pakistan and Indonesia. Um, well, InVenture's in L.A. too. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. LA so they're based out of L.A. They're based yeah. out of L.A. Uh, and so, you know, I'd even tried, like, cold, like, reaching out to the founder of uh, InVenture on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, never got a response, but, you know, always had that on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the other day, I was hanging out with some friends in in Venice. Um, and somewhere in the conversation on the table, I heard, like, mobile money. I'm like, wait, who said mobile money? Like, And so I walked up uh, to the other corner of the table, and I was talking to those guys. Uh, and then suddenly I realized that I was talking, the guy I was talking to, and I, I was telling him, yeah, I'm really interested in mobile banking. And, you know, companies like InVenture and Branch. And he's like, what? Like... I work at InVenture, you know? And so it's just like, so, you know, at that point, I was like, well, you won't believe this. Like, if you go back to my house right now and open my laptop, you're going to see, like, Branch, InVenture, and all these, like, opened up in a stack full of uh, tabs on, on my Chrome browser. Uh, and, you know, we had a good conversation. So, but, you know, that was pure coincidence. 
Mm. But it was also just like being down to go hang out with a friend in Venice when he's like, hey, you want to go just meet some people? You, right. you know, new and people. And then upon overhearing something, having the, yeah. the yeah. courage to just walk up and strike up a conversation yeah. and find out why it's being mm-hmm. talked about. Yeah. 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 You need to show up. It's Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so you're, like, much of what you talked about so far has been related to, I guess, like, you were talking about microfinancing, mobile mm-hmm. lending, um, and I know you've worked, like, when you went back to Bangladesh mm-hmm. in the summer, you've worked on something called Project.co, mm-hmm. um, the crowdfunding platform. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit more about that, your experiences yeah. with that, challenges mm-hmm. you might have faced? Yeah, so um, once we started working on Athletics and... Um, so my main role at Y Athletics was product launches. So when we have a new product, how do we get the pre-orders started? How do we uh, do a pre-Kickstarter campaign and then do mm-hmm. the pre-orders on Kickstarter? Uh, the video, the the script. Uh, so I spent a lot of hours on Kickstarter, just like studying every single campaign that had ever been successful. Uh, so, you know, built up a good understanding of how crowdfunding works. And I realized that although we were doing stuff which were more entrepreneurial, people used GoFundMe, uh, Indiegogo for various reasons, uh, for relief projects, uh, fundraisers, um, for a lot of things on education, art, um, and entrepreneurial projects as well, obviously. Uh, but when I went back home to Bangladesh, I saw you know, a lot of artists, a lot of entrepreneurs, and whenever I spoke to them, the first thing, their biggest pain point was lack of access to finance. Uh, and then I realized that, yeah, you know, as, as students, the only reason we were able to go forward with athletics is because people trusted us through Kickstarter and were willing to put down $250,000 worth of money because without that money, it just would have been impossible. Um, so I figured that people in Bangladesh weren't able to have access to crowdfunding because of strict international money outflow regulations. So you couldn't use, if you, if you did, most of the country does not have a credit card. Only 2% of the population have credit cards. Uh, but even if you did, you couldn't use it to buy anything on Kickstarter or Amazon. Uh, so what I wanted to do was basically create a crowdfunding platform which would enable or empower these artists and local entrepreneurs to raise funding. So almost like local backing for local projects. Uh, so I spent my summer, my junior year summer, back home in Bangladesh, sort of studying what their environment was like and then working with a small group of developers uh, to really put together a, a beta version of Project.co. Uh, and that worked, and alongside developing the website and the product, I was also working with a few different um, uh, community-based projects. Like, the first one we launched was uh, this organization called Abhayarono, Animal Welfare Foundation. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people in Bangladesh still die from rabies because it's, it hasn't been completely eradicated, and the street dogs aren't vaccinated. And so we were raising funds to vaccinate street dogs. Uh, and, you know, it's also a kind of, kind of a, a fundraiser that isn't very sexy. So, you know, for sponsors, they're always looking for something that sort of looks good. Uh, but back home, you know, like vaccinating street dogs doesn't sound, you know, all that exciting for CSR, large companies. So uh, I felt pretty passionate about doing that. And we did that and raised a few thousand dollars for that. And then we raised uh, money for an um, earthquake that happened in Nepal. So we raised about, um, about $7,000 in relief aid for that with Wasfia Nazreen. Um, she was one of the uh, first Bangladeshi women to climb Mount Everest. Um, so a lot of cool things happened, uh, but eventually I started realizing that the main problem wasn't in like payments or this and that. It was just that the entrepreneurial ecosystem back home is still very young. Um, and although there's a lot of excitement, there's 
very few actual deliverables. And the entire point of a crowdfunding campaign is that if you have deliverables, you can take money first and then deliver it. Right. But you know, if people haven't gone to the point where they have deliverables, it sort of makes it very difficult for a platform to keep going. So are you planning on continuing it or you're kind of letting it? Yeah, so I've, uh, it's been live for about a year right now. So exactly about 13 months right now. Uh, and what I've learned is that it's extremely hard to find projects. And even the projects that we did find, uh, I sort of had to go with my own group of friends and make the entire script and video for them. So there's definitely a problem that very few people have deliverables and people who do uh, don't necessarily have the right skill sets right now. So I find it very difficult staying here in L.A. and trying to help be on the ground and help out people back home uh, put up these projects. Uh, so I think it's still going to be around, but it's going to be in a different form where it's not necessarily going to be like Kickstarter because we don't have that kind of scale as yet. It might be something where we're doing one project every three months uh -huh. and, uh, you know, one project every, um, you know, four to five months. And we put in all their energy into getting that funded. So here's here's a kind of a, a wacky question for you. Yeah. Uh, so let's say you're entering a space. You have a you have a great idea. You have a you have an awesome product, mm -hmm. um, and the main competitor is a clone of yourself, who's already like much further than you and has been doing very well. So how would you beat yourself? How would I beat myself? Yeah. Wow, that's a super interesting question because. I hadn't. I've never thought about that. Um, this is. I, I'm realizing right now that this yeah. is a very convoluted way of asking what your weakness is. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, this is, this is exactly what I, just, I, yeah. I didn't. When I came up with that with Mark a while ago, I was like, "Man, this is this is a crazy question." <laughs> it's not that crazy. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, yeah, I, I sort of picked up on that. I'm like, "Well, what's my weakness?" Um, <laughs> I think. I think early on, uh, I'm, I'm motivated by things that sort of provide me instant gratification. Um, so in the long haul, like right now when, you know, Project.co or something like that is really slow, um, like my motivation levels, like my self-discipline is kind of bad. And so if something isn't sort of giving me self-gratification uh, um, or instant gratification, it, it's harder for me to stay focused, which is something I'm working on. Um, so if someone wanted to launch a crowdfunding project right now where like I'm sort of my energy levels on that is sort of low right now, uh, they could sort of give me a run for it, you mm. know. So I'm also, but as I'm also learning, because so far uh, my mentality was that hey, I'm still in school, so I'm gonna do things try that a are bunch exciting of things. and you know yeah. try a bunch of different things, and didn't really have the patience for things to organically uh, develop. Um, so yeah, if you find some, if you find me doing something that I'm really excited about, that I'm not excited about in a few months later, you could come, you could come and give me a run for it. <laughs> cool, nice, yeah. So how have you been able to just in general balance school, why athletics, mm -hmm. just these random other pursuits? Yeah. Classwork um, is hard enough. And especially it's not like you're a, a business major where yeah. classes are usually lighter on my <laughs> industrial systems engineering. Like my roommate's ISC and yeah. it's a it's a tough load. Uh, yeah, um, uh, I think ISC, well, it's sort of on the easier end on the engineering spectrum. Oh, okay. and so a little harder than business, but much engineering, much, much easier than anything such as yeah. electrical engineering. Um, so people in the Viterbi School of Engineering call ISE as I suck at engineering. So <laughs> when, you don't, when you can't do anything else, you go through ISE. But I, I think it's a pretty valuable, valuable major because it's that bridge between business and engineering. 
but to be honest, I think it wasn't all that bad. I always had a close group of friends with me in all my classes. So whenever I'd miss classes, lectures, uh, you know, I'd, I wouldn't fall behind because I would have friends who had notes. And we always had group studies. And uh, I had m my friends would literally teach me things overnight right before the midterm or final. Um, so I had a lot of friend support. like um, So that and then... Um, I don't know, I didn't think about things all that much, you know? Or like, if I thought something was exciting, I, like, put everything aside and just did it. Uh, and then, you know, figure out, figure out everything I need to do uh, later. And I somehow managed. Uh, but it was definitely very, very hard, especially with doing things back home in Bangladesh, because the biggest problem there was the time difference. Right. And so it took me a while to figure out what was the best thing. Should I stay up till 6 a.m. and just sleep through all my classes and not go to classes and then catch up? Or should I sleep like midday between 5 to 10 p.m. and then stay awake the opposite circle? But that sucked because I hardly got to spend time with any of my friends. I didn't have time to get lunch or dinner with my friends. So that was probably uh, the most exhausting period. Anyways, before we, I guess, get into our final questions yeah. about yourself and random interests, realize we never finished up the Y Athletics conversation. Yeah, yeah. And so basically where we left off with that was... You completely surpassed your goal of 30,000. Mm -hmm. You had your whole Ariana Huffington situation. What happened after that? So what yeah. happened between then and now? And then mm -hmm. where do you see the company going forward now? Yeah. Um, so we did our first campaign for shirts. Um, and then once we delivered the products, people loved it so much. And, you know, when we asked them for feedback on, you know, what kind of products you'd like to see next, uh, everyone was like, yo, we'd like socks, you know, comfortable socks that are odorless. Uh, so we did a second campaign on Kickstarter, and that went on to raise about $385,000. Uh, so we did that, delivered those socks, and then did a third campaign that raised uh, another $100,000 for socks. So our entire brand um, philosophy is that we want to be the go-to brand for men's activewear products. So for every product category, like shirts, socks, shorts, hoodies, we want to have one product that is the best in its class. Like if I ask you for uh, what's the best, you know, activewear shirt out there, you know, it's 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 hard to answer because even within Nike, there's so many different kinds of products, even within Under Armour. Uh, so, like when we called up Nike and asked them, "Hey, I want to buy the best activewear shirt," you know, what, w which one's the go-to shirt? You know, they had to ask like five questions. Do you, you want to play golf in it? Do you want to do this and that? Uh, and we're just like, we just want a really good soft premium activewear shirt uh, so that's sort of our ideology that we want to have one product for product category and make sure it's the best in its class so going down we're definitely expanding to different product categories one by one and um, yeah yeah and for I want to say for the listeners that are skeptical of this shirt if by any chance I've seen these shirts in person you know you know uh, Alex or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. I actually had a class with him yeah. He, like, made a whole presentation about mm -hmm. these shirts and how, basically, your odor, yeah. it takes away all the smell. And he showed us one shirt that was used, one shirt that wasn't, and... You couldn't tell? You couldn't tell. So, <laughs> uh, and if you're wondering, why, like, who is this wise guy saying, like... <laughs> I guess I'm wise, yeah. wise, wise guy. Yeah. Uh, making these outrageous claims. Yeah. It works, yeah. so... Yeah, definitely. so the, the silver in the shirt neutralizes the odor and prevents the t-shirt itself from retaining odor. Mm -hmm. So we can't necessarily say that it's going to prevent people from smelling 
because uh, if you don't take a shower and go on for an entire week wearing it, the shirt won't smell, but you will. the person might. Yeah, <laughs> you will. But uh, if you're sort of having, if you're uh, biking to work or jogging to work and you sweat, but you spend the rest of the day in, this, in the shirt, the shirt itself isn't going to retain the smell of odor. Yeah. So now that you're graduating, mm-hmm. that do you see... Where do you see why athletics heading? Are you do you want it? Are you going to continue to invest in it? Mm-hmm. And also beyond why athletics, where does your what does your future look like going forward? Yeah. So uh, because of some uh, family responsibilities, I'm going to have have to head back to Bangladesh. Okay. Um, so I'll be I'll be in San Francisco going through a software engineering boot camp in the fall, and then go back to Bangladesh by the end of the year to help out my dad with our family business back home. Um, so that leaves me with having to make the tough decision of, you know, what do I do with Y athletics and, you know, all the things that I, you know, had sort of in my roadmap for here in the U.S. Um, so since I was involved in primarily like product launch, um, um, you know, I sort of got involved at that times. Um, most of the work so far has been done by Sam uh, and he's been doing a great job at it and he's going to sort of be running the show going down. And you know he has been while I've been at school, so I don't I don't think nothing's nothing much is going to be changing. And we speak regularly, so even when I'm back home, he's continuously talking to me about new product ideas and you know how we should launch this and that. So I don't think it should make that much of a difference. I think uh, the products are amazing and speak for themselves, and uh, you know the company's going to be growing over the next few years. And I'm going to be eight thousand miles away on the other side of the globe. Mm-hmm. Yep. But making it work. Yeah, yeah. So now to your, I guess, you mentioned that photography is something you love doing. You mentioned people know you love cars. Yeah. I guess, why do you love those two things? Mm -hmm. How how does that play into your life? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because those two two are so closely related. Really? Because I was really into cars my entire childhood. Mm -hmm. And when I was in high school, there was an online forum um, and, you know, where people would talk and discuss cars and this and that. And uh, so back then, I was really into cars. But the only way I could really be involved in the forum, online forum, was through photography. So I started photographing cars. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a white Mazda that I had sort of modded up. Um, and so I used to share photos of that. And, you know, to make it look much cooler than it is, I would have to, like, put in a lot of focus into learning photography. And then soon I realized that people stopped talking about the car. They were talking more about the photo. Like, oh, that's, that's an awesome photo. <laughs> and I realized, oh, okay, maybe like, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this photography thing. So I got really into it. I bought a small uh, Panasonic pocket camera that had all the manual controls. And, I, and, it, and as soon as my parents would fall asleep, we only had like, one computer on the third floor of our house. So I'd like, go back up to the third floor after midnight and like, just watch YouTube videos all night on just like, <laughs> photography. Uh, so I sort of self-taught myself the basics, you know, fundamentals of photography and started photographing cars as a hobby uh, and sort of uh, built up, uh, like people in, in the online forum knew me as the guy who takes awesome photos. And then I realized that, you know, why restrict myself on cars? Uh, so I started doing like nature photography, macro mm-hmm. photography, and then travel photography. And that's sort of what started it. And I can't remember what led me into being interested in cars because it was just so early on. Like, if I look at my childhood photos, I'm going to see myself being a toddler and just playing with cars. So, uh, but my car, my passion for cars led me into discovering photography. And do you think that that passion for photography has played into the way that you 
approached your Kickstarter campaign and your like eye for quality and yeah. making sure that it has a certain mm-hmm. level of aesthetic perfection? Yeah, I think I think so. Cause um, so when we made the video for our first Kickstarter, that was the first time I'd ever worked on a video before. But I think so much of photography is just the composition. It's not about the camera. It's not about you know what you know about how how to take a photograph. It's how you frame certain things. Um, so so I felt pretty good going into videography because I'm like, hey, I understand composition, uh, but now I just have to apply composition to moving images. You know, um, so I felt pretty good about going into that, and it definitely helped. Does anything consume your mind on a daily basis that just maybe not necessarily irritates mm-hmm. you, but what are you mm-hmm. constantly thinking about? Um, so it depends. I always have something in my mind that it's that I'm always thinking as I'm you know falling asleep when I wake up, when I'm in the shower, or when I'm walking to class. Um, so right now it's uh, you know what I'm going to be doing when I'm back home in Bangladesh, and um, uh, so our family business back home is is sort of like a financial. Um, problem and so I'm just constantly thinking of different ways on you know how I can help or be of value back home yeah and in the long term I've definitely seen myself back in Bangladesh and I think being in Bangladesh gives you the opportunity to be between India and China the two largest uh, populations in the world Uh, so I'm constantly thinking about what's happening in India what's happening in China you know how does Bangladesh being right you know geographically right between that play a role in in those two growth markets and you know how Bangladesh itself has, is the world's eighth largest population. So there's a lot of opportunity and you know potential to change lives. And I think what takes up most of my time is how we can leapfrog certain things. Like Peter Thiel mentions that you know, if everyone in China and India had to live the same way as Americans do right now, the electricity usage, the food they have, um, the cars they drive, you know, like that would be disastrous for the world. Um, and so just reinventing things like completely going off the grid through renewable energy, um, you know, jumping landlines, jump, going straight to mobile, uh, jumping straight to mobile banking instead of doing credit cards. Uh, so I think cool things like that really take up a lot of my time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. time's almost done. We have our lightning round coming up. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So to start things off, yeah. pet peeve. Uh... Wait, what's the definition of pet peeve? Something that <laughs> you have a hunch something on. that just bothers you that maybe shouldn't, but it's oh just like God. something that um, happens all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, small talk. Small talk. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> Best gift you've ever received. So when I was having, when I was going through a really tough time with school and work and everything, and I was falling asleep, you know, sleeping throughout the day and working all night. Um, one time when I woke up, I found a post-it note. Uh, which had my favorite Subway sandwich, like saying that uh, my friend had went and gotten me my favorite Subway sandwich so I didn't have to like walk to Subway at 2 a.m. and get food. So I thought that was one of the most thoughtful gifts someone nice. ever gave me. They're delicious. <laughs> so speaking of Subway sandwiches, or on the topic of food, weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Weirdest thing I've ever eaten? Yeah. Um, crocodile meat. <laughs> Where was, was it? That? It was exactly like chicken, just a little more chewy. Where'd you eat it? Uh, in Australia. Nice. Yeah. Um, hot dog, is it a sandwich or is it not a sandwich? Uh, it's not a sandwich. Mm. Why? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, it's, it's vertical. Sandwiches are like horizontal. It's the orientation. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> Morning or night person? Morning. Uh, why? I like having the space to think when then there's no one else around. And even if I'm walking out, I know like every single person over here is like asleep and I'm awake. And that's a pretty interesting feeling. Favorite book? 
uh, zero to one by Peter Thiel. Oh, nice. I've read. Yeah. I'm in the middle of it right now. <laughs> nice. Personal fact we've never guessed about you. Ooh. Um, I broke my teeth. Uh, I broke my, yeah, I broke my tooth when I was 11 years old, and you'd never know that this is fake. Oh. So, I mean, that's we a really lame know. one, but the <laughs> first thing that came to my mind. It's a good one. What's a, a hobby that you've had that you don't have anymore? Ooh. Oh, I used to love building um, scale, model scale buildings. So, uh, so when I was a kid, I used to love playing with Hot Wheels. Um, but the traditional tracks that came with Hot Wheels are pretty boring. Um, so I would build entire cities out of, like, styrofoam Whoa. so I could, like, play. Yeah. Cool. How do you decompress at the end of the day and keep your sanity? Hanging out with friends, my roommates, and my friends who are over. I think that's one of my favorite things to do at the end of the day. Uh, it's like talk about our days. Everyone's sort of working, but also at the same time talking to each other. So either that and if there's, if, you know, there, there aren't any friends around, just get into bed and read a book as I fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. If you could pick one person's brain, who would it be? Ooh, I think it'd be Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that concludes the lightning round. And looks like that concludes our interview with Wise today. Once again, Wise, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. It was an awesome experience. It's and It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you and be able to interview you today. Grant, as always, had a great time. Hey, me too, man. Thanks, Wise. Really enjoyed talking to you. Awesome. Thank you and for having me. Before we sign off, something I just remembered. I wanted to say earlier, and when you were talking about luck and mm -hmm. serendipity and everything, uh, something I think my mom always told me uh, might be like a, a famous quote. I'm not sure, but it's luck is where opportunity meets preparation and mm -hmm. i think that's something that definitely applies to you you could tell we could tell you like you always put yourself out there mm -hmm. give yourself the opportunity yeah. to make something happen yeah and one of my favorite quotes is that if you want something bad enough that the entire universe is going to help you know, conspire uh to make that happen exactly yeah very true so that concludes the spark xm podcast thanks for listening and we'll see you guys soon <laughs>